0: Welcome back, everyone, to the 252nd episode of Power Your Parenting, Moms of Teens podcast. I'm Colleen O'Grady, the host of the show. Hey, moms. I wanted to let you know that I have a few more spaces in my Dial-Up the Dream Book Club Plus. We are going to start January 26th. This is a six-week program where you will meet with other like-minded moms. This is for moms who have a son or daughter between the ages of 17 to 25, This would actually be perfect for the mom who has a senior who's about to graduate from high school. I know this is such an exciting time. Many of you know where your son or daughter are going to college, and wow, what a relief that is and a huge celebration. And this is going to be a huge change for you and your teen. You're letting go of a lot of control and letting your teen go to college with an immature brain, when your son or daughter turns 18, they are considered a legal adult, which I'm sure they've told you often. But the psychologists who understand the brain science calls these 18 to 25-year-olds emerging young adults because they aren't quite adults. So here's one quick question. Did you do anything foolish when you were in college? I know I did. Yes, that brain isn't fully developed yet, and these emerging young adults tend to make impulsive decisions and not think things through, and yet you are letting go of managing them and monitoring them, and now it's all on your teen to manage their own life, and at some level, this feels like a relief, but then it just can drive you crazy because you're wondering, are they doing what they're supposed to? I, sh- I mean, I-, I hope they are. But are they? Plus, you won't be able to see them every day to make sure they are okay. And communication can be challenging when they leave home. Often when you call them, they ghost you. And then it's easy when they don't get back with you to obsess. How are they doing? And again, are they doing what they're supposed to? Are they okay? So mom, your role is going to change. And how you parent is going to change. And if you still want to be able to influence your teen and speak into their life when they are gone, you will need to have a healthy, positive relationship because they can avoid you if you don't. And this is why I have my doll at the Dream Book Club, because I want to help you be ready for this huge transition My book, Dial Up the Dream, is the what-to-expect book for the moms who are about to let go of their teens. And yes, if you don't have that book, you can order it wherever books are sold. Book Club Plus discusses Dial Up the Dream with other like-minded moms, and I will personally coach you at the same time. If you want to know more about the Dial Up the Dream Book Club Plus, email me at colleen at com. And you can email me through my website, Colleen O'Grady, and that has two L's and two E's. Does your teen frequently get angry? Well, in this episode, we talk about what anxiety-driven anger looks like in our teens. Kelsey Torgerson Dunn, MSW, LCSW, specializes in anxiety and anger management therapy for kids, teens, and college students. She opened her group practice, Compassionate Counseling St. Louis, in early 2017. She practices Cognitive Behavioral Therapy, CBT, Acceptance and Commitment Therapy, ACT, and Mindfulness Skills, and often finds that just having someone on your side is the most helpful part of counseling. Kelsey recently published, When Anxiety Makes You Angry, and this is written for teens using a proven effective approach rooted in evidence-based cognitive behavioral therapy, CBT. When anxiety makes you angry will help you identify the anxiety beneath your anger, accept difficult emotions rather than fighting or trying to ignore them, and learn healthy coping and self-regulation skills to help you find emotional balance. You'll also discover how to quote, train your brain to stop and think before reacting and how to choose calm over chaos when faced with the things that trigger your anxiety or anger. This book is a great tool for our teens.
1: So welcome, Kelsey. Hi, Colleen. Thanks for having me today. Oh, it's going to be fun. So are you a mom? I am. So I have one daughter and she's 18 months old. So we're in the fun, almost toddler, you know, age period right now. That's awesome.
0: So you have a new book when anxiety makes you angry CBT anger management skills for teens with anxiety driven anger. So what made you write this book or why did you write this book?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. So, uh, The story of why I wrote this book is when I was out of graduate school and I got my master's degree in social work at Washington University here in St. Louis, I got a job at a behavioral school and then from there I worked in a couple of different elementary schools and I had so many kids who got referred to me for therapy services and the parents or the teachers would say, oh, this kid is like so oppositional or this kid maybe has a conduct disorder. So there's a lot of anger stuff going on. And we would work on anger management techniques and we would see some improvement, but there would still be issues going on. And it wasn't until I came across this article from the Child Mind Institute that talked about how anxiety can sometimes be at the root of anger. Those anxious kids can look really angry on the outside, but inside there's all this anxiety and stress that's happening that's you know, making them feel this way. And it blew my mind to think about how anxiety and that fight-flight-freeze impulse, especially that fight side of it, could be looking like anger at the tip of the iceberg. And underneath, there's this fear and this anxiety that we needed to work with and treat. Um, So that's what really started my work in this area. And the more kids, the more teens that we've seen, the more I feel like there's really this need to be addressing this issue that often gets hidden.
0: Yeah, no, I completely agree. So you talk about the anger iceberg. So can you explain what that is? Yeah, absolutely. So the idea with the anger iceberg
1: is that uh, the tip of the iceberg, we see all these angry behaviors. That's how it looks on the the outside. But underneath the surface is, you know, the 90% of the iceberg It's it's hidden under the water. And underneath your tip of the anger iceberg is all this anxiety, stress, but also things uh, that could be like trauma or grief or family histories, like all this complex stuff That if you're only paying attention to the tip of the iceberg, you're missing the much bigger picture of of what's really happening and what's really going on underneath the surface.
0: Yeah, I think this is so huge to understand that because, like, I see that so much as parents get so angry or they think they have the worst kid ever because they just see these angry, like, slamming doors or them saying rude things, but we have no idea really what's underneath that surface.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I see it with my own toddler sometimes too, where she see, you know, she has a huge temper tantrum or a huge meltdown, and those are overwhelming behaviors. And I know if when she's a teenager, I'm going to be seeing that when she's a teenager too. And if I just focus on that, I'm going to get really overwhelmed too. Versus being able as a parent to take a step back and think about, okay, she seems angry, but is she also disappointed that she didn't get this cookie, or she's also feeling sad because we're not going outside when she wants to go outside, or she's feeling nervous because she knows we're getting ready to leave her with a babysitter. You know, there can be other things happening besides just the anger. And that's not to say that anger isn't important to deal with, or that it's okay to be angry and to be, you know, physically aggressive, or that it's okay to be disrespectful all the time. Just remembering as a parent that you kind of have this opportunity to be in charge of yourself and how you respond to the situation. So if you're able to bring some empathy to it, you're probably going to have a better outcome than they get mad, you get mad, you
0: fight, and then you're just right back at the starting point all over again. Right. Yeah. And with teens, there is so much stress and so much anxiety. Like you don't know if this girl during lunch was completely blown off by her friends or someone talked about her or the guy she liked just broke up. We don't know what's underneath that iceberg. We just see the slamming door. So it can just help moms be a little bit more compassionate or Mm -hmm. curious Mm -hmm. about, not that I have the worst kid ever because they just slammed the door, but what else might be going on?
1: Yeah, definitely. I think too, As a parent, you've known your kid for their whole life. This probably isn't a new problem to see this angry external kind of presentation. But when they were younger, was it just angry all the time? Or were there other clues that you noticed too that maybe it was a little bit more anxiety related or fear based? Like, have they always been a little bit nervous around new people? Have they maybe had some trouble on the first day of school feeling comfortable leaving you? Or do they seem like they're really worried about what other people think about them or how they're doing in school or how they're going to do on the test? Anxiety can look a lot of different ways. So if we just focus on maybe what looks angry or irritable on the outside, we're not taking that time to think about what else could really be going on. Is it something where it's social anxiety, test anxiety, performance anxiety, fears about how I'm going to do in college in the future. You know, it can be a a lot of complex stuff that gets all tangled up together.
0: Yeah. So that's really good to think about the early signs of that, that it just doesn't pop up in teenagehood. So can you explain what anxiety-driven anger is?
1: For sure. So anxiety-driven anger is basically what we've been talking about. Something that looks angry on the outside, but inside is due to these anxieties and these fears and these stresses that have built up to a boiling point. So I mentioned fight, flight, freeze earlier, but fight, flight, freeze is the survival response that we all have on this biological level where, you know, back in our caveman days, our survival response is, you know, we have a saber-toothed tiger come across. Are we going to fight that tiger? Are you going to run away from the tiger or are we going to freeze and play dead? And hopefully that tiger will just leave us alone. And I think there's a new one that people are talking about a lot more to you of the fawn response, like trying to befriend that tiger and uh, make it our pet and tell us it's the best tiger ever. So it's really easy to see flight, like running away as an anxiety response. You know That kid who runs away from the first day of school, you're like, oh, they're, they're so nervous or freeze those kids, those teenagers who are so shy and clam up around other people, we forget that fight is an equally valid anxiety response, and it makes you want to defend yourself and protect yourself. So that anxiety-driven anger is really talking about those teens, those kids, even those adults who respond to those anxiety-provoking situations with anger or aggression, or just like a physical tension where they seem like they're ready to explode. It's anxiety-related, and it's anger due to that underlying anxiety. Mm. Yeah, that's so good. So you talk about the cognitive triangle. So how does that work? Mm-hmm. So the cognitive triangle is a framework that I use in the book, um, which is a principle of cognitive behavioral therapy. So cognitive cognitions, behavioral, obviously the behaviors. How our thoughts and feelings impact our behavioral outcomes, and the cognitive triangle is a way to kind of take step, take a step back and look at what am I telling myself in my brain. How is that impacting my emotions? And what behaviors is that leading to? And then at each point of the triangle, what could I do differently? So, you know, when I'm talking to teens in my counseling practice, we look at what is the first thought that pops into your head? And is that actually true? Or could something else be going on too? Like if you were to walk into a lunchroom and a group of kids starts laughing, maybe the first thought that pops into your head is they're laughing at me. And emotionally, you might be feeling a little bit angry or nervous or anxious or that anxiety-driven anger where you're nervous about it and it feels like anger too. And then behaviors, how do you react to that? Do you storm up to them and ask them what's so funny? Do you run out of the lunchroom and say, I can't deal with this today? Do you clam up and just focus on them for the whole rest of your lunch period and then just feel so distracted the rest of your day? It can lead to different outcomes, right? And we use that triangle to figure out what happens for you. Then at each point in the triangle, what can you do differently? So Starting with thoughts, like, do you know for sure that they're laughing at you? What if they're laughing at something totally unrelated? What if they're laughing because they are just talking about your older brother and you walked in? What if it's something that is not about you at all, right? We don't know what they're laughing about. So you have to take the time to think about, is this actually true? Or could there be something else that would be more helpful to tell myself? So if you say, they're probably laughing about something not related to me at all. What emotion is that going to lead to? Like you're going to be maybe curious or maybe just calm or maybe just disinterested. And then the behavior that leads to, you're just going to go about the rest of your day and eat your lunch and then go to your next period. The situation is the same, right? Like a group of kids is laughing no matter what. What changes is what you tell yourself about that situation. And so that's, really powerful for us to recognize that we can decide what to tell ourselves and we can decide how to react to something and decide how to calm down so that we're not feeling like our emotions are kind of taking charge of ourselves. We're we're the ones who are in charge of our thoughts and our feelings and our, our reactions.
0: Yeah, no, that's really great. Because what you tell yourself impacts how you feel and how you feel impacts your behaviors.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. So when you have a teenager and you're a parent and you're seeing they're having these reactions all the time, it might feel helpful to say like, what are you telling yourself? And is that actually right? But it also is probably helpful for you to model it for your team too, to walk through, you know, here's a time when I lost my temper with my child. You know, I noticed that I was telling myself that you weren't unloading the dishwasher on purpose. But I wonder if maybe it was that you were feeling really overwhelmed or focused on homework or something else. So when I told myself you did it on purpose, I got really frustrated and I yelled at you and I didn't have to do that. I could have done something different. You know, being able to take ownership as a parent for the times that you kind of lose control or maybe get a little bit anxious and stressed and it it comes across as anger, I think is a really powerful tool for empathy, but also to keep the lines of communication open between you and your child so that they feel comfortable telling you, about what emotions are coming up for them and what thoughts are coming up for them. And they want to explore that with you too moving forward.
0: Yeah, no, I completely agree because you're modeling self-awareness and that's super cool. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I was thinking about, I mean, this could be a trap for a mom because if a mom goes in there and their kid says, oh my God, I don't want to go to school because I'm so stressed, everyone hates me. If you just go, well, is that true? you know, they're going to probably react. So (laughs) what I find is helpful is quantifying things. So who is it that you feel doesn't want you to be at school? Who else? Is there anybody else? Who's somebody that you think wants you to be at school? Who's excited about you coming to school? Those kind of questions that quantify can be super helpful, I think, which gets to the same thing that you're talking about, which is helping them just adjust the thought a little bit because sometimes they hold really hard to that first thought if you say oh really they feel invalidated like you don't care so I think that could be helpful
1: yeah I think that's a really great idea for kind of taking the heat out of the moment too like let's really explore this but in the book I also talk about how we have different options when it comes to those thoughts that pop into our heads so For some people, that restructuring route, like what else could you tell yourself that's true is really helpful. For others, it's more helpful to just notice that thought and not to fight it or to reframe it or whatever, to just say, I'm noticing this thought that these people don't want me at school. It's just, it's not a bad thought. It's just a thought that's coming up for me. And, you know, maybe what's a way that I can move forward, even if I had this thought coming up. I think for parents a lot of times too and I say this as a parent of a toddler myself we kind of jump into problem solving mode versus taking the time to figure out what are you feeling and let me not just assume your feelings like let's let's explore how are you feeling right now and and why and let's calm down so that we can have a conversation about it instead of being really overwhelmed and then let's go to the problem solving piece of it so it's this three-step approach that is also talked about in my book. And I've got a, a handout for that on my website too. But identify the emotion, empathize with the emotion. There's no such thing as a bad emotion. Help your teen, help your child calm down. And then ask them how you can help them solve the problem. Not like, here's what you need to do, but here's what might be helpful. What do you think? And how can I support that?
0: That's great. That's great. So you mentioned the restructuring route. You also have the acceptance route and the hybrid route. Mm -hmm. Um, And maybe you just explain what those are, but can you just talk a little bit more about that?
1: Yeah. So on the theoretical side of things, the restructuring route is more like CBT. The acceptance route is more like acceptance and commitment therapy. And the hybrid route is what a lot of the teens that I see in my private practice really like to use. So I love to have a lot of options. But that restructuring route, it gives you just like we talked about with the cognitive triangle, like what else could you tell yourself right now? What is more helpful? But that acceptance route, it's like this idea of if I tell you don't think about chocolate cake, the first thing that's going to pop into your head is chocolate cake. And then if I tell you, you really shouldn't think about chocolate cake, it's bad to think about chocolate cake. Like that thought doesn't get smaller, it gets bigger and harder to deal with. And often we feel shame for the thoughts that we have if we don't like them. So the acceptance route is just, it's not a bad thought. It's not a good thought. It's just a thought. It's just, is what it is. Now for some people, just that is really powerful. For others or for certain situations, it might be helpful, but not helpful enough. And so you want to say like, this thought isn't bad. It isn't good. It's coming up for me. And at the same time, I could tell myself something different in this situation. So You know, if I get less than an A minus on this test, it doesn't mean that I'm a bad student. It just means that I didn't get the score that I wanted and I can move forward and, and do something different for the next test. And I've got a whole other like course load to be focused on besides just this one thing that's coming up for me. It's like how I've got chapter five is my coping skills chapter so many coping skills. And that's because you want to figure out what works the best for you and you want a lot of different options.
0: So that's why I like to have different routes for dealing with with the thoughts in the book. No, I get get that. You talk about the window of tolerance and how do you figure out your explosive point? Mm -hmm.
1: Yes. So with the explosion point, it's kind of like that, your personal tipping point where the stress levels build up or your emotions build up to the point where you're just not in control of them anymore. And you just feel like totally out of control. So for a lot of the teens or college students with anxiety driven anger, that's where it looks like they're having a huge anger outburst, even though it's anxiety driven. And we all have different levels of what we can tolerate. So for some of us, we have a really small window of tolerance. And if we have like One or two stressors stressors—that's all it takes for us to explode. For others, we've got bigger windows of tolerance or if you're building coping skills or like you're in therapy or you're doing these things that help you kind of take care of yourself, um, that helps us to make our window of tolerance bigger. Throughout the day, Things happen that are going to move us up on the window of tolerance, making us feel more anxious or angry or overwhelmed, or they're going to move us down on our window of tolerance, making us feel more sad or more depressed or kind of more shut in. And a lot of us kind of like operate within our window throughout the day, but we're not in control of all these situations outside of us. So we might have like one stressor happen and then another and another and then another. And then all it takes is one more small little thing and we explode. We have the huge meltdown and the tears and the crying and the shouting and the yelling. And we can't actually do anything about it until we get back within our window. So that's why it's so important to maybe track out the last time that you exploded, like what happened for you? Like what were all the things leading up to it? And when could you have incorporated some kind of coping skill that wouldn't have changed the fact that the stressor happened, but maybe would have made it a little bit easier to deal with? The next stressor and the next stressor and the next stressor and ideally like kept you within that window instead of reach a tipping point, your explosion point. So again, it's, it's just a way to kind of track out and model things and use that information to start thinking about how do I build the skills that I need to deal with these things when they come up
0: for me? Because we can't change what happens to us. We can just change how we respond to it. Yeah. And you also talk about the emotions elevator. So can you give me an example of that? Yes. Yeah,
1: so with emotions elevators, emotions, just like elevators go up, but they also come back down. I'm talking about the book. It's like so many different things to help you understand the issues. So let's say with our anxiety elevator on a one to 10 scale. So 10 would be the very top of the elevator. One is when you're just down on that background that floor. Everyone is going to notice different individual clues for how they're rising up their anxiety elevator. So maybe at like a one or a two, I start to feel my heart rate increasing. And then at like a five, my fists are really tight and tense and I start to feel a little bit sick. And then at a seven, that's when my eyes start tearing up and I kind of start feeling like I'm hyperventilating and I might be getting really sharp with people because I'm feeling so anxious. And then at a 10, when I'm at the very top of my elevator for anxiety, that's when I'm, you know, having a panic attack or whatever. And different people might have different clues at different points of their elevator for those emotions. It's really hard to calm back down when you're already at like an eight or a nine or 10. It's just like you're at the top of your window of tolerance, right? So if you can start to be aware of those smaller levels in between, you can more proactively deal with that rising level of the emotion. Um, The emotions elevator is really a helpful way too to track, you know, when you're trying these different relaxation skills, or maybe you start going to a yoga class or you're running or whatever. Checking in with your emotions elevator to see like, does this help lower the level of my emotions and how effective is it? And maybe there are these situations where I need to do two or three coping skills to really calm back down and lower that elevator all the way where I need it to be versus sometimes people will be at like an eight or a nine and they do a coping skill and it, it only lowers them to a seven. And then they say, well, that didn't help. And, you know, what's the point of me
0: doing more things to calm down? Cause it didn't do what I wanted it to do. Yeah. I think an important thing to say here is that this book, When Anxiety Makes You Angry, is meant for teens, right? Mm-hmm. Yes, teens and college students. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, it's great for you too, mom. So it's something that you could read with your kid. It's really easy for a teen to read it and understand it. So I wanted just to say that. Thank you. In terms of the coping skills, you talk about breathing activities, muscle activities, Meditation and mindfulness activities. And you said each one of those has a different purpose. So, can you give me some examples of that? Mm -hmm. So, those are kind of the three clusters that I think of when I
1: think of relaxation. And just like we've all got our own emotions elevators and our own, you know, windows of tolerance, we're all going to respond to relaxation skills differently. So, the more tools you have to try out, uh, the easier time you're going to have figuring out what works the best for you. So, I think. Breathing skills are so foundational. And even just if you were to take a moment right now to just take a slow breath into your nose and out to your mouth and just noticing like what a difference that one small deep breath makes. However, sometimes people with anxiety that looks more like a panic disorder, if they're in the middle of a panic attack, Deep breathing is going to be really hard. It might even feel like it makes their panic feel worse because they're hyperventilating or feeling like they're not breathing. So breathing activities aren't necessarily the best for every person and and every single situation. Some people really like muscle activities where you're like really focused on grounding or like tensing your muscles really tight and then letting them relax. And other people love meditation and mindfulness where it's more focused on, you know, giving yourself a guided meditation, something to focus on, to, to let your brain focus on this area. But even if you try a breathing activity and you're like, well, that didn't work. I don't want to use it. I would still encourage you to try a lot of them and to try different muscle activities and to try different meditation and mindfulness activities so that you can figure out maybe these are the ones I want to use in these situations, or these are the ones that are really helpful at the start of my day or at the end of my day when I'm in bed. You know, we can use coping skills when we're in the moment and it's stressful, but we can also use them just throughout our day to just lower any underlying stress that's already there.
0: Yeah, yeah, and I would add, yeah. Some sometimes the breathing is what you need, and and I'll do some of the breathing with my clients, and that's very helpful. But in under the muscle activities, I would add cardio. Mm-hmm. Sometimes just getting out there, if you're like dancing crazy or you're running or doing something else you will feel a million times better just doing that. So I would just add that. And under the guided meditations, I'm wondering, Kelsey, if you could do one of your guided meditations with us, that warm light one? Mm -hmm. I would love to. Okay, great. (laughs) So I was going to say
1: too, and you and I talked about this before I started the interview. So if you're listening to this while you're driving, don't close your eyes. But if you're at a safe spot right now, you can go ahead and close your eyes or just find one spot in front of you to look at and to focus on. Um, and we'll just go ahead and start with a couple of deep breaths again. So you'll go ahead and take a slow breath into your nose. And then out to your mouth. Good. Another slow breath in. And out. Good. And one more slowly into your nose. And out through your mouth. And you can go ahead and just let your breathing return to normal, not really focusing on it, just letting it stay calm and cool and steady. And what I want you to do is, I want you to picture a warm light just floating right in front of your face. And that warm light can be any kind of color that you want it to be. So maybe it's your favorite color, or maybe it's a color that just looks really warm and inviting. And with your next breath in through your nose and out through your mouth, imagine that warm light traveling in through your nose and just kind of starting to circle and swirl around your head. And everywhere that warm light touches, imagine it just softening and smoothing and relaxing those muscles. So feeling it warming and smooth, the muscles in between your eyebrows and across your nose and your cheeks. Letting that warm light travel into your jaw and letting your jaw smooth and relax and even letting your tongue kind of come off from the roof of your mouth. As you breathe in deeper, feel that warm light travel around your skull and down your neck, letting all those little neck muscles warm and smooth and relaxed. Feeling that warm light fill up the base of your throat, letting that all warm and soften and relax. And then breathing in again through your nose and out through your mouth, and letting that warm light travel across your shoulders, letting your shoulders soften down your arms, the backs of your arms, into your hands. Feeling that warm light kind of swirl around your palms and travel into each finger and your thumbs. Picture that warm light traveling down from the base of your throat and filling up your heart and your stomach, letting all the little stomach muscles soften and smooth and warm and relax. Imagine that warm light radiating from your heart and your stomach into the rest of your torso and around your back, letting all of those muscles just warm and smooth and relax as that warm light travels to those spaces and fills up those spaces. And next, imagine that warm light traveling down the fronts of your legs, the backs of your legs, into your knees, down into your shins and the backs of your calves. Feel that warm light travel into your heels and the arches of your feet and your toes. Just taking a moment to breathe in and breathe out, filling up any other spaces that you need to. And when you're ready, you can slowly blink open your eyes. That was nice. Thank you. And, you know, we were talking about emotions elevators before. So maybe checking in and seeing, you know, stress-wise, anger-wise, anxiety-wise. Was that a helpful tool for you? Because it's really easy to to incorporate it.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it's very helpful. So this is something that teens will do. Mm-hmm. It's something that teens will do. It's something that I, I
1: love to do meditation when I work with teens and college students at my private practice. Often what I'll say is, let's just try it. And if you don't like it, you don't like it. But you know, let's just try it today and see how you feel. So I think a lot of times with teenagers, they're very resistant to adults telling them you should do this. But if you say, maybe you could do this, no pressure, they might be a little bit more willing. So if you're a teen and you're like, ooh, maybe I should get when anxiety makes you angry for them maybe saying, here's this book. I think it might be helpful and just leaving it somewhere for them to find it. Or yeah, no, that's I'd good. love to talk with you about it. Yeah, that's good. Sure. And I bet they all love it. I think I think they do, yes. And that's why I love working with these anxious, angry teens because they feel like no one gets me, no one understands me. So if you have this space for someone just like warm and accepting of these emotions and can talk through these emotions, fit
0: you, makes you feel a lot less defensive about what's going on. Yeah. So I have another question. So you give the teens the acronym SILLY. Mm -hmm. So what does that stand for and why do you use that or how to use that? Yeah,
1: sure. So SILLY, it's just a SILLY acronym that I came up with for the book that kind of walks you through problem-solving skills. And the book, really, my goal was how would I explain things to a teen in session and make it feel really approachable for them? So with SILLY, the idea is you as a teen are starting to be more responsible for yourself, right? Like as a parent, we want to help our teens do a lot of different things. But we also know that pretty soon they're going to be going to college and becoming an adult. So we can't solve all of their problems for them. So I really want to um, motivate the teen to kind of take some responsibility and feel a little bit more self-reliant. So the silly, it really is walking them through like staying calm first, investigating for, for what's really going on and what the problem is looking for potential solutions and and sharing those with the the person and then listening to feedback because we can't just say, well, here's what's going to solve the problem and do it. We need to get feedback from people, especially if you're a teen, like you can't solve the problem and then have the teacher tell you that doesn't work. You need to get feedback from your parent or your teacher or your coach and then incorporate that feedback before you get a yes or no, we can move forward or we need to go back to the drawing board. So, silly is just a way to, and hopefully it sticks with them, just a way to kind of talk about how we need to be taking the time to look at what's going on in the problem and figuring out what to do about it. And we need to be willing to get feedback and be open to that feedback, recognizing that we need to listen to other people before we just decide to do whatever we want to do, right? Yeah. So, do you have any last advice for our moms listening? I think my last advice for the moms that are listening is to not feel hopeless. If you have a teenager who seems really angry on the outside, even if you have this little thought at the back of your head, like maybe it's not just anger, maybe it's something else. It makes a lot of sense to be worried that this is always going to be a problem for them or that things are never going to get better. I totally get that and empathize with that. And at the same time, there is hope. Like you're listening to this right now. You're starting to think about things or maybe you did the the guided meditation and you felt more calm as a parent, There's opportunities to change and to move forward. And if you're feeling like what you're doing isn't helping or isn't helping enough, you know, my book is totally an option, but also... Look at getting some help through therapy, even if your teen says that they're resistant to therapy. Like trying to find a counselor or a social worker that they can at least try and see for a couple of sessions, just to see if it's going to work. No pressure. You know, you want to have resources available for your teenager, but also as a mom, you could be getting therapy for yourself and just having a space to explore and talk about and process what's going on. So there is hope. Things will get better. They won't be like this always, and uh, don't give
0: up. You can move forward. Yes. And I can speak to that personally. My daughter had anxiety-driven anger and she's now 26. And it was interesting that she found the coping skills that she needed. So my daughter became certified in yoga as a yoga instructor. She became certified as a meditation instructor. She practices meditation and does yoga and she also goes to the gym a lot. So she kind of knows like this kind of combination of things that keeps her grounded.
1: Yeah, Colleen, that's so awesome. She's got the the meditation stuff and the muscle stuff and the breathing stuff all together too. That's, that's great.
0: Yeah, and she just, she found that on her own. But yeah, so I think moms, the, the coping skills for these teens is really, really important. They can really manage this anxiety and they don't understand why they get angry. Mm-hmm. They have no idea. Mm-hmm. They don't know that there's anxiety underneath it. So, but these coping skills really is helpful. And I think a book like this helps put into words what some of these teens are feeling. So, all right. Thank you for writing the book. <laughs> thank you so much. <laughs> Where could moms find this book and how could they contact you?
1: Yeah. So When Anxiety Makes You Angry is available on Amazon and Bookshop and IndieBound. And I also have links to all those different places on my website, which is KelseyTorkersonDunn.com. And moms can contact me on that website too.
0: Okay. That's awesome. Thank you so
1: much. Thanks for having me, Colleen.
0: This concludes this week's episode of Power Your Parenting Moms with Teens podcast. If this podcast has been helpful, I would absolutely love it if you could go to Apple Podcasts and give How you Parenting Moms with Teens Podcast a five-star review. This makes it easier for other moms like you to find the support and encouragement they need. Also, my best-selling and award-winning book, Dial Down the Drama, Reducing Conflict, Reconnecting with Your Teenage Daughter, A Guide for Mothers Everywhere. You can find that and order it online at Amazon and Barnes & Noble. And you can always find other great resources and contact me at ColleenOGrady.com, two L's and two E's. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit C-SuiteRadio.com.